Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. This week, Australia's Moya Dodd, one of the most influential women in world soccer, joins me to talk about what she's doing these days to support the growth of global women's soccer and what is still painfully wrong with the representation of women in the global game. You would like to think that if you gathered football people together, you'd have a a group that was better than the average population on a whole range of measures. But you then look at global football, you look at its governance and the misadventures that we've seen, and you say, well, I don't know. I don't really know that this is actually better than average performance compared with the rest of society. And if so if if that's what you see, then it's very clear that football's not fulfilling its potential. All that and more coming up. Our guest today is one of my favorite people in world soccer. Australia's Moya Dodd has been one of the most influential women in FIFA. You heard her name mentioned several times in our recent panel podcast on the struggle for equality in global women's soccer. She used to be on the FIFA board and is still on the executive committee of the Asian Football Confederation, as well as a member of FIFA's Player Status Committee and chair of Common Goal, whose players, led by Juan Mata, have pledged to give back a percentage of their paychecks to soccer charities around the world. The last time I interviewed Moya was for our January 24, 2017 podcast. Check that out if you want to hear about her backstory. But there is a lot that is new to talk about. And Moya, you're in New York City, which is great. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. The last time I spoke to you was by Skype. You were in Australia, and I felt like I was in a time machine because it was literally January 1st, 2017 in Australia and December 31st, 2016, where I was... uh, That was a really good conversation, Uh, but it's nice to have you in person here in New York. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, Let's get into various things that that you're involved in uh, these days. We were just talking before we started recording about some of the stuff you were doing in Jordan, which is part of the Asian Football Confederation that you're a part of. What were those things? Well, we just held the Women's Asian Cup in Jordan. So uh, it was the first time a senior women's tournament from Asia had gone to West Asia. And there we were in Jordan, you know, surrounded by interesting neighbours. Uh, I mean, the uh, the chemical weapons attack reports came through while I was in Jordan. In fact, I was in Zatari refugee camp oh, when, wow. when those reports came through. Um, the, the missile strikes. You know, it, it's a fascinating country which has always played a role, I think, certainly in modern history, in promoting dialogue and promoting progress. It's, it's quite a special country. And, and to host the under... Uh, 17 Women's World Cup, as Jordan did in 2016, and then to host the Senior Women's Asian Cup, uh, I think makes Jordan quite a, a beacon of progress in the region, certainly for uh, for women and sport and uh, gender equality. And one thing you were involved in there was a game uh, that took place as the lowest elevation game ever played in the Dead Sea. And this was a similar, this was the same group that was involved in the highest altitude game on the summit of Kilimanjaro uh, recently. What, what was that like? 
That was a riot of fun. I, I was able to join them just for the last few days of their hike. Uh, they had hiked all over the place in Jordan for about, uh, in total, about 10 days they spent there. Uh, I joined them just as they went into Petra. Mm-hmm. So we had some little games of keepy-ups and head tennis in front of the Treasury Building at Petra. By special permission, I would say, don't try this if you go there. <laughs> it won't end well for you. Um, uh, and then uh, we held an exhibition game in Wadi Rum. Um in front of the seven pillars of wisdom. I mean, this is just sort wow. of dirt and rocks and and then uh, equal playing field. The group uh, uh, that I, I went with turned up with goalposts and bags of flour to mark out the field wow. um, in a biodegradable fashion, corner flags, and off we went. We had a, we had a great time playing. Then we went to a camel racing track <laughs> uh, in Wadi Rum and held a clinic for... 267 local girls um, who had, we found out, had never played outdoor organised sport before because, Mm. you know, we're in um, rural Jordan. It's very different to the cities, but uh, it's just not the done thing for girls to play outside in view of boys Mm. where, where they can be seen. It's not right for boys to see girls running around playing sport. And that, that hit home the next day when we went to the, the brand new artificial pitch that had been built in this uh, uh, relatively poor township near the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the little girls were on doing this uh, clinic, having a great time, and all the little boys were up against the wire um, looking at this fantastic new facility and watching what was going on. And upon the complaint of a uh, an elderly besuited gentleman who, who must have been very important in the local uh, town... Uh, a policeman with a baton turned up and sort of ran around the perimeter of the field whacking these little boys and chasing them away because, you know, the complaint was it's not right for these boys to be watching girls. Oh, wow. um, and, of course, the next day the uh, the world record lowest match was held mm. uh, between two teams of, of women, some of whom were covered, some of whom were not covered, uh, as you'd expect, with the group that was gathered. And uh, a couple of thousand locals came out to watch, including a lot of men and a lot of boys. So, Mm. you know, I'd like to think that in the space of 24 hours, the needle moved somehow on the on the acceptability of um, of women and girls playing sport in full view of the public. It seems like moving that needle over a long period of time, sometimes over a shorter period of time, but in some ways defines a lot of what you've been working at for for quite a while now. Uh, Not all of it, maybe, but a huge part of it. And it seems to me, when you observe different things that are happening around the world in global women's soccer right now, that taken together, things are happening, that change is happening, whether it's in places like Jordan, whether it's in, uh, maybe we're seeing in Brazil with their women's national team. Some of this is connected to some protests we've seen with Brazil and Nigeria, Mm -hmm. uh, Ireland, but some of it also just is in opportunities to play. Like when you look at right. it as a whole right now, what do you see happening? Well, you're right. There, there are a lot of needles to be moved. Uh, and you can look back and say in the last five or ten years, we've seen an enormous amount of progress. Uh, you've seen um, much greater accessibility for women and girls to play. You've seen greater visibility. You've seen national leagues popping up in many countries that didn't have them 10 years ago. I mean, look at Colombia, Mexico. You can you can name a long list where the leagues are emerging. Uh, you've seen women entering the boardroom and the committee room 
more, um, although I think you'd have to concede that overwhelmingly it is male decision makers who make the calls around the women's game. So I, still th- I think there's still a long way to go before mm-hmm. there's much uh, inclusion in that decision-making and, or self-determination even. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen um, wages, uh, wage disputes uh, at the elite end of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, you've seen a lot of pressure on federations to do more for women. Uh, it's been called out that you know, only half the federations in the world have grassroots programs for girls. It's been uh, called out that less than um, 1% of the presidents in world football are women. So actually, when it comes to voting, uh, voting in representatives, voting for major uh, uh, issues in Congress, such as who will host the Men's World Cup, for example, that women have a an extremely diluted voice in those forums. Um, so, you know, I, I see progress, but I, I also see that there's a... Uh, a large body of inertia that needs to be moved. And, and in a way, you can only change minds one at a time. Uh, so th- the visibility and the um, and simply hearing the voices of uh, in favour of progress, whether they be male voices or female voices, is very important. So, so thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wrote about this last year. Uh, I thought you did terrific work when you were involved with the FIFA board. I thought it was... Uh, almost tragic that you, in running uh, for the FIFA Council, uh, did not win that position based on all the good work you you had done, um, and that it ended up going to uh, a person who uh, I didn't think personally was qualified for it. Uh, and I talked quite a bit about this. How have you responded to to not being able to get back on the FIFA Council and in what you're doing now? What are you, what are your big things that you're working on? Well, well, I um, I was disappointed, obviously, not to be able to be part of it because FIFA is a great platform to work from. Uh, it, if you're a member of the FIFA Executive Committee or Council. You can get a meeting with pretty much anybody in the world if you if you want to talk about a football-related issue. Uh, you can ask a lot of questions. You can sort of tug on a lot of sleeves because you're in the room when a lot of important people are there who you might be able to ask a question of or uh, suggest an idea to. And it gives you the opportunity to do all those things um, outside the committee room because you're in the places and moving in the circles where uh, where those opportunities arise. Of course, inside the committee room you can you can do things as well, but the reality is that you're sitting around a very large table and you're just one person. So uh, you know you have to you have to be cognizant that your one voice in, in the occasions that you do get to speak is not going to change the world, but actually it's being in that milieu that gives you so many more opportunities. Um, I mean for me the 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 task at hand didn't change at all, really. The, the task is to improve football and make it better and fairer uh, on an inclusion basis, not only for women but for, for others as well. Um, and, you know, you'd, you'd like to think, um, and I do believe that football is a place where you, where you go to become better. Uh, you become, you learn to... Uh, be stronger. You learn to be fitter. You learn to focus better. You learn to be a better teammate. You learn to help improve others just as you try to improve yourself. And that makes the team stronger. 
Uh, I mean, you learn a gazillion things playing football and being in the game. So you would like to think that if you gathered football people together, you'd have a, 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 a group that was better than the average population on a whole range of measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you then look at global football, you look at its governance and the misadventures that we've seen, and you say, well, I don't know. I don't really know that this is actually better than average uh, um, performance compared with the rest of society. And if, so if, if that's what you see, then it's very clear that football's not fulfilling its potential. You were a big part of the reform package that did get passed uh, at FIFA back in 2016. Uh, it didn't go as far as you wanted it to in terms of True. inclusion. Um, what are the next steps in your mind to try and, and really you know, make some additional change at that level? Well, I think the reforms uh, on paper did go quite a distance. I mean, I, I would have personally liked to see them go further, but I think everybody in the room would have liked a bit more of this or a bit less of that. And in the end, what was most important was that a package was passed with a thumping majority uh, and that you know FIFA was able to make its way through that most difficult time. Um, clearly now the challenge is implementation. Mm. Uh, the FIFA statutes now have among their objectives, you know, this is the reason to exist for FIFA. The, the, the statutory objectives include um, the promotion and development of women's football and the inclusion of women at all levels of football governance. It includes resourcing the game so that everybody who wants to participate can, regardless of their gender or their age. I mean, these words are in the FIFA statutes now. The major committees of FIFA have obligations to... Um, to do this work. If the development committee has to make sure that development programs are um, gender inclusive. The uh, governance committee has a role in uh, supporting gender equality. Um, the finance committee has to finance programs uh, uh, with, that, are, that are gender inclusive. So each of these sort of major levers of, of uh, football administration have obligations in there to advance gender equality and the women's game. Uh, but un- until, but these things are just words on a page, right, yeah. until somebody does something about them. So that's the challenge, you, you know, with all the, the competing priorities and the uh, ongoing challenges of world football governance, uh, that, that these things still have to be done. And could they be done better? Could they be done more? Uh, I'm sure they could. Uh, I think we're further down the road than we were, but um, there's still a lot of uh, uh, road in front of us to, uh, to, to move along. We've heard a lot recently about FIFA and the, potentially an expanded men's club World Cup and big money offers from foreign uh you know, folks to take that over from FIFA and make it much bigger, like a once every four year tournament. We haven't heard much recently about FIFA and a club women's World Cup. And to me, that seems like such a no brainer to do and to invest in and to make uh, a real regular big event out of this, in part because it would be just a fun competition. You know, I think there's a lot of leagues around the world where um, 
you know, with the women's game is growing. You mentioned some emerging ones, but also some more established ones in Europe and, um, and in the United States. Um, are we anywhere closer to that happening? Look, this is a really interesting topic. I'm, I'm a huge fan of women's club football because I think it's the next big thing in, uh, in growth. Mm-hmm. You look at the women's national teams. I mean, for example, look at the US, right? They've had a good team for a long time. They've been semi-professionalized or professionalized for a long time, uh, well ahead of pretty much every other nation on earth. And, uh, and, and so there is a group of maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 players who are in and around that senior women's national team who are top players uh, who can be um, who can perform once every four years at a World Cup, once every four years at an Olympic Games and in uh, confederation um, uh, tournaments. Then you look at the whole population of uh, women footballers in the US and there's millions of them, right? And there's a lot more than 30 or 40 who are capable of entertaining you uh, on the big stage, on the television. Um, and that's where club football comes in because, you know, you have obviously the NWSL. Uh, you have, instead of 30 or 40 players, you have hundreds of players who can who can be seen in leagues, in national leagues. You multiply that by even just the top, 10 or 20 countries, and you now have a much bigger population of potential stars who can entertain not just once every four years, but every weekend, can be seen on the television uh, every every weekend. You have players from, uh, for example, Wales is a good example, Jess Fishlock, right. like Ryan Giggs, I think hasn't played a World Cup, right. right? But she is a great player to be seen at club level. So that kind of talent can be seen in club competitions, whereas um, that you're not going to see them at all or, or very much in national team competitions on the biggest stage. Um, so that's one reason, just the sheer visibility of the talent and um, the frequency with which it's seen uh, mm-hmm. depends upon club football to make that happen. The second reason is because when you look at um, – you ask yourself, where is the next big lick of investment going to come into women's football? Uh I look at the national federations and, sure, a lot of them could do more, um, especially when you get down into the sort of second tier, third tier even of global football where you find some very big football countries who don't spend anything on their women's team. So, you know, you look at the progress France made very rapidly once they turned their attention to it. You look at um, Spain is now coming through. Italy which used to be a leader in women's football globally, will be back um, mm-hmm. as, as they focus on it more and more. But think about, you know, Argentina. Think about Portugal. Where's Portugal? I mean, they're well down the list. I mean, all of these countries could invest more. So there is like a, a bubble of investment coming as those countries come on board. But that isn't going to make that, – that's not going to be – exponential on a global scale i think the exponential investment will come from clubs from mm-hmm. club football there is loads of money loads more money in club football than there is in national team football that's just a fact in men's football globally uh what, so, was, what was your response when you heard that manchester united recently was finally going to start a professional women's team uh well i think it was in keeping with most uh most um, women's football watchers around the world, which was, you know, finally. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, how did it take this long? How did it take until 2018 for that announcement to come? Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And Real Madrid still doesn't. Well, 
you know, when when you say where are the next big uh, lumps of investment going to come into women's football, I think it must be through clubs because these clubs have enormous budgets. They're growing rapidly. You hear the talk about the uh, Club World Cup for men and the kinds of numbers that are getting thrown around. Uh, these big clubs have enormous budgets and they have enormous brand names. And if yeah. you could imagine putting, I don't know, 16 of those uh, clubs together, um, f- they would cover major markets around the world. When you look at the best uh, the best club teams in Europe, they come from big markets like France and Germany and England yeah. and, and so on, Sweden. Um, then you look around the world and you see, well, Japan, US, Brazil. Uh, these are enormous markets. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't be a thumping business case for a women's club World Cup. And I noticed that the International Club Championship now, is, uh, which is being held in different locations around the world, including uh, in the US, are adding a women's competition in hmm. this coming uh, northern summer. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the, the International Champions yes, Cup. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a four-team tournament, which who knows? Could if, if FIFA doesn't sort of, you know, do what they could do, then maybe there's a, a an opportunity for something like that to grow into. Well, it's clear that the major clubs around the world are having a lot of conversations right now. Yeah. I don't know if those conversations include women's football, but they really should. Yeah. They really should. Um, in terms of we have a Women's World Cup coming next year in 2019 mm-hmm. i think in the u.s in some ways we're already looking forward to it since our men's team is not involved in this summer's world it's cup. nice for you to be involved in a world cup isn't it <laughs> <laughs> and i'm wondering from your perspective what are you excited about in the year that exists between now and the 2019 women's world cup well i think there'll be a lot of investment by the uh, teams that are going or aspiring to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we saw in Asia uh, the tournament, the Women's Asian Cup served as the qualifier for the World Cup. Right. We saw the Philippines come roaring through with a team that was better than I'd ever seen before. They mm. had invested substantially in the recruitment and the training of that team. Uh, you saw Thailand perform above expectations uh, and they qualified for their second Women's World Cup in a row. Mm-hmm. So all credit to... Their coach, actually a woman coach, uh, mm. Nguyen, who who took them to the last World Cup, um, and and I think the the countries that that know there is a bit of a gap are starting to feel that that gap is closable, and with mm. a bit of investment, you can make an enormous difference to the performance of your national team. I think it was Sunil Galati actually who got up at the last FIFA Women's Football Seminar in Canada on World Cup final day, mm. and said that he. As an economist, he knew that one incremental dollar invested in the women's game would make more of a difference than that incremental dollar in the men's game, and um, hence the investment record of U.S. soccer into their into their national women's team, which I know is still a point of contention. Uh, but I have to say that looking on a world scale, uh, you're among the the absolute leaders. Uh, we've seen teams like the Netherlands too sort of emerge mm, mm. on the women's side. You know, you talk a little bit about countries that are viewed as soccer countries, football countries traditionally, um, but maybe the women's program hasn't had as much stature, but that's slowly changing. And, and in the Netherlands, by winning the Euro, hosting the Euro last year, you know, that really galvanized their fans and built their fan base so that now when they play 
their own World Cup qualifiers, they're drawing extremely well, it seems like. It's fantastic. I mean, anyone who thinks that people don't want to watch women's sport just have to look at some of the attendance uh, records recently. The Mexican uh, League final, I believe. 42,000. Massive crowd. Uh, the Women's Champions League semi in Lyon, where they played uh, uh, in front of, um, I think it was 20-plus thousand mm-hmm. in Lyon. You know, people do want to watch. It's it's just not an argument anymore to say that this is not a worthy spectacle. I had a very interesting experience actually in Canada watching the Women's World Cup um, in 2015. And, I mean, the, the coverage there was very good. Every match had at least 22 cameras and some more with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the helicopter views mm-hmm. and so on. And, you know, cutting cutaways to the crowd who, you know, w- with, with good vision from the crowd. And those sort of production levels do make a big difference to the quality of what the person at home sees. I was getting uh, texts from people saying, are you at this game? It's, it's fantastic. You're so lucky. And I would think I was thinking, well, actually, this game is not the quickest game I've seen. It's very hot. The players are struggling. But on television, it looks fantastic. And you have to remember that men's football has been benefiting for the, from that mm-hmm. forever. It's been having the highest production standards uh, possible because it's such an enormous a juggernaut of a sport. When you apply those kinds of uh, support um, structures to women's football, I think you'll see an acceleration even beyond what the most uh, hopeful optimist like me would expect. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Moya Dad, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Moya Dodd, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. That's available on Amazon and Fubo TV. Recent guests include Becky Sauerbrunn, Brad Friedel, Jesse Marsh, and Miguel Almiron. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.